I suppose uh, because we have some new new people here, I wanted to um, just, uh, as I normally do, mention that we're in we're at. I always say we're in the middle of a series. We're pretty much at the end of a series. <laughs> I mean, uh, probably a couple more weeks. But um, I started this series like in January, January third, believe it or not. And the series is is basically the importance of adopting an eternal perspective. Because, you know, uh, we live this one, we have one shot, one chance, one shot in life to, to run the race that God's given us. I'm talking about our callings, our giftings, living fully for Jesus. And the fact of the matter is how we live this life, how we live this, this temporary short time on earth is going to determine how we live forever and ever and ever and ever. We can't even fathom what eternity looks like. And so I've been speaking on all of this so that none of us has to be unaware and unprepared when we stand before the Lord one day. We can stand before him in confidence and be totally, completely equipped and fulfill whatever God's called each and every one of us to fulfill so that we will hear his words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to give you authority over many things. And so the point of this is to really reorient or remind us of how important it is to think about eternity like all the time, not just once in a blue moon. I'm talking like every moment, every day, even the mundane things can have an impact for eternity. Jesus says, if you give someone a a cup of cold water in my name, you're going to get rewarded eternally for that. You know, and so, so even the seemingly mundane, if you're faithful at your job, if you're faithful, if you're, if, you know, you're kind to your coworkers, all of this stuff has eternal significance, and it's important for us to understand that. So the first thing that I, uh, for those of you who haven't been here, by the way, if you want, you can get previous messages. We post them every week on Facebook, our Facebook page, Catch the Fire Ottawa um, or if you sign up for our newsletter, we send them out every week. But you could also email us at ottawacastifier.com if you want previous messages. But I want to—I always give this foundation just for new people that we all are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. I'm talking whether you are a believer or a non-believer, we all are scripturally. And, and I've given a lot of scriptures on this in the past. But here's just one of them from 2 Corinthians 5.10. That's exactly what it says, that every single one of us is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ when, when we pass away to give an account of what we did in this life, whether good or bad, okay? So the thing now, I've been talking about the judgment of Christians, judgment of believers for the past however many weeks. Um, and I make this point because scripturally speaking, we can have every, all of our work, depending on all these factors I've talked about in the past, I don't have time to go into all of it today, but we can have... Uh, the rewards that we can have for eternity can range anywhere from being co- everything we've done totally burnt up to reigning and ruling with beside Jesus Christ forever and everything in between. Okay, and so probably next week, God willing, I'm going to talk about different rewards and, and, and what Jesus promises to if we do specific things, how we're going to be rewarded. I'm talking about the positions we're going to have, the authority we're going to have, what we're going to do forever is determined by how we live this life. Now, the thing that's pretty intense is in Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2, it lists the, it talks about the foundational doctrines of Jesus Christ. And it lists five things. The elementary teachings, it says. And what, the last thing it lists is eternal judgments. That's why we're spending so much time on this. That's Hebrews 6, 2. The reason this is so weighty and important is because they're eternal judgments, meaning they're going to last forever. That's what eternity means. They're going to, the rewards, what, what the judgments are, when we, that's the most important day of our lives. When we stand before the Lord one day, he's going to assess our life. He's going to determine the rewards, everything we have, based on how we've stewarded this life, and those are going to last forever. And they're ne- that means they're never going to change. That's why the, the, I'm spending so much time on this. It's important for us to think about this so that we're living our lives completely for eternity, completely. That's the bottom line. We live our lives fully for Jesus. So for, the, for those of you who've been here, I've been talking about the believer's judgment because there's also going to be a judgment for unbelievers, but we've been focusing these weeks on the believer's judgment. I talked about how I'm dividing it in two major categories. The first one I talked about how we're going to be assessed based on building the kingdom of God according to our callings and giftings. 
The second thing that I started last week is how we build individual lives. So the first thing I talked about in regard to other people's lives according to our influence on them, and if for those of you who are here, you might remember I talked about Luke, from Luke 19, the parable of the Minas, that Jesus gives us, we, we are called to multiply what Jesus has given us. And we can, we can use, all of us can impact eternity. No matter who we are, what we're called to do, all of us can pray, Right? All of us can pray for individuals, for families, for ministries. We can pray for Reinhard Bonnke and some of the, the souls that he's impacting for eternity. We're going to get credit for because of our prayers. So in some ways, it's up to us how we multiply what God's entrusted to us. So I talked about how we can influence others last time by sowing and reaping, by giving, by praying, by serving. All these different ways that we can impact eternity. Today, I want to talk about our individual lives. How we cooperated with God's spirit and grace in developing Christ-like character. Now, I, I, I like this topic. For those of you who are new, I give a lot of scriptures, so buckle your belts, here we go. But um, developing Christ-like character, our, we're going to be assessed on our character. How we lived our lives, you know, and, and how we've cooperated with God to building our character. Now, this is an interesting subject, and, and some of you might not know this, but we are in a new covenant, okay? And what that means is that if you read the Bible, there's an old covenant and a new covenant. When Jesus Christ came, we, as believers, are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, okay? So the interesting thing is, if you think about Christian ethics, and this is a whole topic, and someday, I'll get to that later, Christian ethics, what I want to say is it's not a behavioral requirement that says now that you have positional righteousness with God and you've come to new life in the spirit, here are the Christian rules. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance. That, even though that's what a lot of churches do, that is not biblical. We are not under the law anymore. So unfortunately what happens is often we say, okay, you're saved totally by grace. It's a free gift. Then they come to church. Now that you're here, here's the rules. Whether explicit or implicit, right? You got to do this, you got to wear that, you got to do this. No way. Now, the interesting thing is, though, I don't know if you've thought this through, and this is what I'm addressing today, and I'm going to be using a lot of scripture to address it because it's an interesting point that we may or may not have thought of. The Bible is also clear that we have to pursue righteousness. What does that look like? If we're no longer under law, what does, it, what does righteousness look like in the new covenant? Okay? And I want to talk about that today. So here, just to give you some scriptures saying we actually need to pursue righteousness, because we, we do have positional righteousness in Christ. That's a free gift. But there's also a, a righteous... In other words, how do we live righteous... How do we live a godly life now that we're saved if we're not doing law anymore? Now, here's some scriptures. Matthew 6, 33. This is Jesus Christ speaking. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Both things. We have to seek those things first. Kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Contextually, he's talking about don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, where you're going to live. Because if you seek his kingdom, you seek his righteousness, all that's going to be given to you. Great. What does it mean to seek his righteousness? Right? Now, that's not uh, um, Paul the Apostle, who is the absolute proponent of grace in the New Testament. Most of you might know that. These are his last letters in the New Testament. This is when, right before he dies. He says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call the Lord of a, out of a pure heart. Some people say because you have positional righteousness, you're no longer supposed to seek righteousness. This is Paul the Apostle who tells us we have positional righteousness in Christ, telling us to pursue it. 1 Timothy 6.11 says essentially the same thing. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So the key point is that we have a part to play in seeking God's righteousness. And the question I already asked, which is the question of the day, that I'm going to hope to address is how do we seek God's righteousness? What does that look like? Okay, so I, I'm going to I'm going to try and make a case here. Seeking righteousness. Now, this is a, admittedly a really challenging scripture. 
but you know me, I, I don't shy away from challenging scriptures. So I'll just read it. This is Jesus' the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, the, one of the most famous portions of scripture. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's his way of saying the Old Testament. Okay? Law and prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's an important word. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Okay, but look what he says after. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything's accomplished. Therefore, anyone, now get this, who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches, it's both, these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice, notice this. Our position and authority in heaven is directly related to this. If we say, no, that's no longer applicable, you don't have to do this, you're least in the kingdom, says Jesus, on judgment day. However, if you practice and teach them, you're going to be called great in the kingdom. Now look at verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, remember we're talking about righteousness, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What are you talking about, Jesus? Okay. <laughs> so after this, some of you who know this might know, he goes into, he actually redefines the law. He says, you say, yeah, thou shall not murder. I say, if you're angry, you're angry. With your brother and sister, you're guilty and you'll be judged. You've heard it say, don't commit adultery. I say, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. So he makes it harder. What he's really doing is shifting it from outward externals to the issues of the heart. That's what he's doing. Okay? So the question becomes, here, how can our righteousness surpass the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? A good question is, is it accomplished by doing works of the law? Because that's, that would be an easy way to see that, right? That'd be, that's, it seems like that's what Jesus is saying. And I'm going to make the case that's not what he's saying. Okay, but I, that's why I'm asking these questions, because I, we, the, like it or not, these, these are, this is the Bible, and Jesus says this, so we have to work through this, right? Now, for those of you who are like, oh my goodness, do I have to do law? Here we go. Romans chapter 3, this is an amazing, I mean Romans, come on. But especially chapter 3, verse 20 through 20, or 31, is amazing. I'm talking about, anyway, I don't have time to go give all of it, but I'm going to give you some of it. To, to make a point. Look at this. Verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. There you have it. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That's the point of the law. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Remember, Jesus said that. I've come to fulfill what the law and the prophets came to, to, uh, and not to abolish the law and the prophets. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Positional righteousness. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This is an, this look at how he ends this. Verse 31. Do we then nullify the law by faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What are you talking about, Paul? <laughs> right? What, what's he talking about? So, now, for those of you who are getting nervous, let me show you these two scriptures before I move on. Remember I said the, the, the scripture for, that Jesus gave was Matthew 5? That's how he started the Sermon on the Mount, essentially. This is where he ends. This is where he transitions to his summary, and this is what he says. This is Matthew 7 and verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Pretty simple, right? And I look at, this is, I just quoted Romans. For by, do we abolish the law? No, by faith we uphold the law. Look at Paul says, this is later, this is out towards the end of Romans. Romans 13, 8 to 10. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continual debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. It's all about love. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. There you have it. 
Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Awesome. Love. That's, that's the number one principle. Okay. It's clear, right, from the scripture I just gave you that a person's justified by faith apart from the works of the law. But it's also clear, from what I quoted you earlier, that we are to seek and pursue righteousness. So the question remains, since we're justified by his grace, how do we seek righteousness and develop Christ-like character without getting into works of the law? Right? So what does it actually look like to seek righteousness? If we're no longer under the law, how do we do righteousness in terms of godly living? What does that actually look like? Have you thought about that? Because it's clear that we can't just keep on sinning, you know, and according to a whole bunch of scriptures, one of them, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, those who do these things, and I'm going to quote it later, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we can't also get into lawlessness. So what does life in Christ look like? How do we develop Christ-like character? We have a part to play. So I'm going to talk about that. Righteousness by the Spirit. Thank God for the Holy Ghost, Kevin Hagen used to always say, Kenneth Hagen. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Now, unfortunately, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit's neglected often in the church, and that's an unfortunate thing because he is the one who produces righteousness in us. I'm going to give a whole series on this someday, I guarantee it. (laughs) But I'm going to try and make an important point in one message today, okay? So I'm going to give you a lot of scripture so that we can get to the place where we understand what righteousness looks like in the New Covenant so we can understand how to develop Christ-like character without getting into the law. So, if I had time, which I don't, I would give you a whole bunch of Old Testament scriptures that are prophesying about the coming of the Spirit in the New Covenant. But here's one. This is interesting. This is in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise, this is a prophecy now, will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that they may love him with all their heart and with all their soul and live. Many of you know what's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, body, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. That's it. This is saying, how do you do it? I'm going to circumcise your heart so that that'll happen. Now look at, look at Romans 2, 28 and 29. Paul basically uses this scripture and quotes it. A person's not a Jew who's one only outwardly, which is what Jesus was addressing, right, in the Sermon on the Mount, Nor is circumcision merely an outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit. Not by the written code. Talking about the law. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Okay. I'm going to give you three major portions of scripture that are so essential to understanding what the new covenant is all about. And that's why I'm going to give you, I'm going to just read them. And I hope this, you're okay with this. There's a lot of scripture. But read them so you understand this. Because this is important. This, we're actually going to be judged on this. Right? So it's important to understand what does righteousness look like now that we're new covenant and not under the law. Okay, so the one I'm going to focus on first is 2 Corinthians the, chapter 3. Talking about the new covenant of the spirit. So as I mentioned... Paul's understanding of the new covenant promise is highly influenced by Old Testament passages like Jeremiah 31, 30 to 34 and Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, which I'm going to quote. Ezekiel specifically relates the new covenant of keeping the law in terms of the spirit. This is important now. Okay, so this is it. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities And from all your idols, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from your heart of stone or from you, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So it's actually by the spirit that we keep his laws, right? That's what he's saying. The law of the spirit. So notice this language that Paul uses now. We're fast forwarding to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Now it is God who makes us both us and you stand firm in Christ, and he anointed us, right? That's language about the Holy Spirit. He put his seal of ownership on us, and he put his spirit in our hearts. A direct quote from Ezekiel. As a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. 
Okay, so then two chapters later, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul makes the point that the Old Covenant was written in stone, symbolic of the stony hearts of the people to whom it came. The New Covenant is written on the heart by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is the most important part of the, one of the most important parts of the New Covenant. Now, Christ came, of course, he's the crux, the foundation, but what does life look like as New Covenant believers? It is a tragedy that we've neglected the Holy Spirit talking about most evangelical streams. We claim to be Trinitarian. We pay lip service to it, but really, if we're honest, we're mostly Binitarian, meaning Father, Son. Don't ever talk about the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is essential. The Holy Spirit is essential for New Testament living. Essential. And I believe one of the reasons why the church in the West is the way it is, that you can't tell the difference a lot of times between Christians and non-Christians. Why? Exactly. The Holy Spirit is the one who produces the righteousness, the one who makes us, produces the character of God in us, the one who works miracles, and we've neglected them in our churches for the most part. Now, I'm making broad statements. That's not always true. So, so if you don't believe me, that's why I'm giving you a lot of scripture. That's why I always give scripture, because you can argue with me, but let's see what the Bible has to say. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll just read it. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you're a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, talking about the Old Covenant, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He's quoting Jeremiah there. I didn't give you that scripture, but such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything of ourselves, but we're, our competence comes from God. Now get this. He has made us competent ministers of a new covenant. Notice how he defines the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. That's his definition of the new covenant, isn't it? If you read that. New covenant, not a letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now look what he goes on to say. He contrasts the old with the new covenant. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters and stone and came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? The new covenant, right? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious the ministry that brings righteousness. Remember my million dollar question. How do you do righteousness in the new covenant? There you go. The Holy Spirit. That's exactly what it's saying. He's the one who brings righteousness. For what was glorious has now no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory that of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, but their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Get this. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. This is an interesting scripture. Look what he says in verse 17. Now this Lord is the Spirit. Whoa, really? The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Look at verse 18 now. And we all with unveiled faces, get this, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image. We're talking about how do you develop Christ-likeness. Being developed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord... Who is the Spirit? It is the Spirit. It is the Spirit. It is the Spirit. It is the Spirit. Who makes, who develops Christ-like character in us, who transforms us into his image as we contemplate the Spirit's glory. That's what it's saying. Right? This Lord is the Spirit. Now, the Lord is the Lord, too, Jesus Christ. I'm talking about it's the Holy Spirit who transforms us into his image as we contemplate the Lord's glory. So... Christ in his death did away. He did something with regard to observing the law. He did away with it because he fulfilled the law. And the Spirit has come to fulfill what the law was intended to do in the first place. Talking about the intention of the law now. 
Okay, so the law wasn't meant to make us a bunch of religious Pharisees, but to transform us into the likeness of God. To create in us his character so that we might reflect his glory to the world. Jesus says that, you're salt and light. Be a light to the world, right? The purpose and intent of the law is now fulfilled in the new covenant by the Spirit as the Spirit lives in us, effecting the righteousness of God. Now, I know to some of you might be like, what are you talking about? I hope this is making sense to most of us because, because it is an important question to understand how we do righteousness, how we live godly in the new covenant. We don't do it by doing law, for sure not. That cuts us off from the grace of Christ, which I'll should talk about in a minute, a couple minutes. Now, I'm going to talk about the book of Romans. If I had time, but I don't. But, I mean, I'm going to give you a few verses from Romans. And, and someday in the future, like I said, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm really sure I'm going to give a whole series on life in the Spirit. Because just like how, uh, you know, the, the importance of adopting eternal perspective is more or less neglected in the church, so is life in the Spirit. I mean, come on, who do you hear talking about this? I, I, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, <laughs> someday, but we'll see when that happens. But anyway, for now, here's Romans, the law of the spirit. Okay, so I kind of made the point already. The spirit has come to do what the law could not do. That's the point Romans 8 is making. The law couldn't do this because it didn't have the spirit to, that brings real righteousness. So the spirit is the key to the end of law observance. And this is clear if you look at just a couple of examples, Romans 8, 4, and Galatians 5, 18. And I'm going to read that in a minute. But I have to set up Romans 8. Here's Romans 7, verses 4 and 6. Okay? So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law. This is important. We are not doing law anymore. And I can't say that enough because in a lot, right? if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of churches still preach law. Now that you're saved, here's all the rules you got to do. No way. We died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. I'm just emphasizing the word fruit for now. It's going to be important later. For when we were, talking past tense, in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions are, were aroused by the law, there are, were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. Remember, if you, if you recall a, a bunch of scriptures ago, uh, it talks about, in Romans 3, how it says the, the purpose of the law was to show you you had sin in your life. That's what it's saying here. The, the law actually produces sin because of the flesh, but pre-Christ. Okay. But now, present tense, by dying to what once bound us, talking about the law, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code, talking about the law. See how important the Holy Spirit is? It's a tragedy. Tragedy, tragedy, tragedy that the churches don't, most churches don't talk about. It's a tragedy. Paul calls the new covenant the covenant of the spirit. We just talked about that in 2 Corinthians 3. So Paul here is contrasting the law of the spirit versus the law of sin and death. Now, I'm fast forwarding to Romans 8. If I had time, I wish I could go the whole chapter. I'm just going to give you four verses. Because he's elaborating now in chapter 8 on the verse I just gave you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, thank you Jesus, for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit... Isn't that interesting? The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, look at this, what the law was powerless to do, the law was powerless to affect real righteousness in us. The law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, by sin. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Right? See that? The righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us if we live by the spirit. That's how real righteousness happens. So the law was weakened by the flesh. That's the point. And the flesh-spirit contrast is so important. Someday I want to talk all about that. 
couldn't be fulfilled before Christ did away with all this, but now the righteous requirements of law are now fulfilled by those who walk by the Spirit. That's the primary imperative of Paul, walking by the Spirit. We'll get to that in a minute. The intent of the law was to recreate God's people into his own image, bringing his own image to bear in our lives. But the law couldn't do it. It's powerless to do it because of the flesh. Okay? So what the law was unable to do before Christ, God did it through his Son in order that the righteousness might happen the law might be fulfilled, fully met by the Spirit, by living in the Spirit. Okay. Galatians. I'm, I know I'm giving you a lot of scriptures, but I, I'm trying to convince you of something. And I hope by now you already are. But if you aren't, Galatians, this is actually primarily what the whole book is about, essentially. What does righteousness look like now that we're not under law? Because what was happening in the church of Galatia is that they called them Judaizers were coming and saying, hey, you have to get circumcised. <laughs> You have to get to, and, and, and you know what their argument was? Oh, God, do I have time? The, the, the argument actually makes a lot of sense, because if you think about it, Abraham was pre-law. Abraham was pre-law, and that was their case they are making. They can make a good case of that. God told Abraham to get circumcised and to circumcise right, his descendants. So that's probably what the argument they are using. But then what, what's interesting is Paul goes, okay, that's, that, that's Genesis 17. Look what he says in Genesis 15, that, the just, or that Abraham was declared uh, righteous by faith. So you so see what Paul says is he goes before Gala, the, uh, Genesis 17 to Galatians. Anyway, I'm mixing myself up. The point is, the whole book is about this. He was, Paul was chastising them. He even says in uh, Galatians 2, he rebukes Peter to his face for making, for making the distinction. Putting identity. So basically people were saying, hey, if you're circumcised, you have more favor with God. If you eat certain foods, you have more favor with God. And pa Paul royally rebukes them. Just read Galatians. It's intense. So that's the whole, so Galatians is all about walking in the spirit. It's all about this point I'm making. So at the heart of Paul's argument in Galatians has to do with the question of righteousness, the, today's topic. The Judaizers are arguing that law observance has to do with righteousness. I hope by now you, you know it doesn't. And that's Paul's whole argument is that he's adamant that the time of the law, law observance has passed. The crucial question is, and this is basically the question of the day, is if you do away with law observance, then don't you also do away with righteousness, right? Isn't it the law that made for righteousness? <laughs> and Paul's whole point is no. So the question is, becomes, what does righteousness look like? Look at Galatians chapter 3. I've talked about this before. This is a critical part of Paul's argument because he transitions here. He appeals to their encounter of the Holy Spirit to make his case because he knows that they cannot argue with an encounter. They can't. They, he knows he has them right here when he appeals to their encounter of the Holy Spirit when they are first saved. Okay? So look at this. He makes this whole case about you know, rebuking them for going under law. And then he says this, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's actually a light term for the Greek word. He's literally casting a spell on you. He likens putting people under law to witchcraft. Serious stuff. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? That's Paul's way of asking, how were you saved? He knows he has them right here because they're like, oh, you're a good point. We didn't receive the Spirit by the law. We received the Spirit by faith, by believing what we heard. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? The interesting thing is here, he's actually putting works of the law on the same side of the equation as sinful uh, stuff like orgies and drunkenness. He, all puts it, he puts it all under the category of flesh, and I'll, I'm going to show you that later. Have you ex Look, at he's appealing to their experience of the Holy Spirit. It was obviously dramatic. Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by believing what you heard? The obvious rhetorical question, obviously believing what you heard. His point is the same way you began is the same way you end. The same way you began is the same way you walk the Christian life out. Not by works of the law. It's by 
faith. It's by God's supply of the Spirit. Okay? So then he makes a theological case, but I'm going to fast forward a little bit here. But that's the point I just made, right? After being, this is his point. Having begun in the Spirit, you come to completion by the Spirit. This is the only way. This is the way to, to life, to a righteous life, is by the Spirit. That's his whole point. Okay? So the key point of Galatians is the Spirit is sufficient for life and righteousness. And I'm going to show you this. Galatians, that's what he ends Galatians by making this point. He gives a scriptural basis for this understanding that the Spirit is key to all Christian life in Galatians 5, 13 to 6, 10. Okay, so I'm going to just give you a little bit of this. Galatians 5, not the whole chapter. So starting in verse 1, I'm just giving you a few key points. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Talking about the law. You who are trying to be justified by the law, you've been alienated by Christ. You've fallen away from grace. It's actually putting people under law that makes them, cuts them off from grace. Right? And then, with, so, my, my, my hypothesis earlier is why, is, why can't you tell the difference in a lot of cases between Christians and non-Christians? Potentially, maybe we're putting lots of people under the law and they're cutting them off from the grace to live a righteous life in the Spirit. Maybe. Maybe it is because we're neglecting the Holy Spirit. That would be probably my number one hypothesis. For, now get this. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Look at this. The only thing that counts. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The interesting thing is if you look at the Greek words, and I'm going to show you the fruit, list of the fruit of the Spirit later, those two words are in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is the one who gives you the fruit of faith. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives you the fruit of love. It's by the Spirit. So now fast forward to verse 13, Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, but do not let use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Don't do sin, in other words. Don't go into lawlessness now. That will also cut you off from grace. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Sound familiar, doesn't it? Look at the next verse. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Love. That's the whole point of Christian. Now, what's important about this, like I said, it's by walking in the Spirit, that's Paul's primary imperative, that produces love. Because if you look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit, the number one fruit, the first thing listed is love. So that's actually a fruit of walking in the Spirit. We can't, the law cannot produce love. The law cannot produce the character of God in you. It's all externals. The Holy Spirit can though, right? That's his point. So if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. Here we go. Verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit. Like I said, the primary imperative of Paul. And you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. You won't go into lawlessness if you walk by the Spirit. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. Now get this. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Both. So the Holy Spirit keeps you on the path of life. The Holy Spirit keeps you from going into the ditch of lawlessness. The Holy Spirit keeps you going from going to the other side to the ditch of law. He's the one who keeps you on the path of life. It's all about relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's all about walking in the Holy Spirit and being led by the Holy Spirit. And look at, uh, I didn't t- talk about the rest of Romans 8, but Romans 8, 14 says something similar. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. It says in that same portion of Scripture, it's by the Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, then he lists the lust of the flesh, in case you're wondering, what are you talking about? He gives a whole list. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So these are just some examples. Like I said earlier, in chapter 3, he puts the, in verse 3, he puts the law, he calls it a work of the flesh too. So you could put the law on that list. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this, talking about lifestyle now, will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
So that's a severe warning. It's important that we don't live a life. Now, Paul's a realist too, because if you look in Galatians 6.1, which I don't have up here, he says, if anyone falls into sin, let those who live by the Spirit restore such a person by the fruit of the Spirit of gentleness. He doesn't say fruit of the Spirit, but he says by gentleness. And he just talks about the fruit of the Spirit, so that's what he's alluding to. The point is, yeah, we're not perfect. We're not talking about perfection here, but we're talking about intimacy with the Holy Spirit who produces the character of a God so that we can escape the lust of the flesh and living in the law. Here we go, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, and I have love, number one there is highlighted. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, just to name a few. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We have a part to play. We have to actually keep in step with the Spirit. We actually have to be led by the Spirit. We actually have to walk in the Spirit. And that's why getting to know the Holy Spirit is critical. Critical in our walk with the Lord. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So, so here we go. In Galatians, Paul is answering this question. What happens to righteousness when you get rid of the law? This is the whole point of the argument in Galatians. Paul says it. This is, you come to completion the same way you started by the Spirit. Okay, so the Spirit does it. You get the real thing by walking in the Spirit. You get real righteousness, not externals. You get the real stuff, the stuff Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what's it? Now, you, okay, you get love, you get joy. Like, you know, in, in Romans 14, 17, he's making the same argument. He's saying the kingdom of God is not a matter of food or drink. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. It's all about the Holy Spirit, producing the character of God in us. Now, the interesting thing is most of the words that are listed in the fruit of the Spirit are also used in the New Testament to describe either Christ or God. In other words, God's producing his likeness in our lives by the Spirit. Think about it. God is love. The God of peace. Right? These are, these are characteristics of God, and it's saying the Holy Spirit is producing Christ's likeness in you. That's what the fruit of the Spirit's all about. However, we need us, the part we play, right, pursue righteousness is to walk by the Spirit and keep in step with Him. That's the part we play, is learning how to walk by the Spirit. It's all about relationships. See, God sent Jesus so that He would restore the relationship that was taken away from us because of sin. Talking about Genesis now, when Adam sinned, right? And so the whole point of sending Jesus was to restore that intimacy that Adam and Eve had in the garden before sin entered in. How do we do that? We can have that intimate relationship with God by the Spirit. Through Christ. I, I should also say this. If you remember um, in, in, for instance, 2 Timothy 2.22, when, when Paul says pursue righteousness, notice he says pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. What are those? Through the Spirit. Along with those who call to cry of God out of a pure heart. In other words, the way you pursue righteousness, the way you pursue those things is by the Spirit because he's the one who produces it in you. So what should we do in light of all this? That's a good question. How, so my question is, how do we seek righteousness and develop Christ-like character? With <laughs> how do we seek righteousness, develop Christ-like character without getting works in the law? We come to know God and his character by coming to know Jesus Christ. That's number one, who gives us the spirit when we're saved. There's a ton of scriptures on this, right? The minute we, we are saved, we're born again by the spirit. We're born again by the spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in our hearts. I gave you that scripture from 2 Corinthians 1, 21, I believe, and 22. As a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come, it's all about the Holy Spirit. So in terms of living a righteous life, everything has to do with God and his character, his likeness being brought to fruition in our life by the Spirit. It's all about the Holy Spirit. So the key point is, we have, a part, we have a part to play, and I made that point, that seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We have a part to play in seeking it. How do we seek it? By walking in the Spirit. By getting to know the Holy Spirit intimately. By developing that relationship with the Holy Spirit. Remember in 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18. 
contemplate the Lord's glory. As you contemplate the Lord's glory, he will transform you into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Right? So the part we play, we, we contemplate the Lord's glory, we develop that relationship, and as we do, we, we get transformed into his likeness. So developing our relationship with the Holy Spirit, so we learn how to walk in the Spirit, we be led by the Spirit, we keep in step in the Spirit, and that's how we live the Christian life. That's why Paul ta- says this is the new covenant of the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is going to not tell, he's going to tell different people to do different things because we're no longer under law. It's not black and white. It's what's the Holy Spirit telling you? Now, of course, there's boundaries, right? He lists the lust of the flesh. You can't go sinning because that'll cut you off from grace too. But the only way you're going to know what to do, where to live, where to go, how to, how to you know, whatever you're <laughs> talking about is all by the Holy Spirit. He'll tell you what, right? And, and I've talked about that before, so... Now, I want to end on this because you might be like, okay, great. I'm a Christian, maybe, hopefully, and, and I have the Holy Spirit, but um, how do I actually do this? This is, now, I gave a whole sermon on this last August, and if you're interested, I can send it to you, but I'm just going to give you this verse. Because this is Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. This is an important scripture. Luke 11, 9-13. So I say to you, ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you'll find Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Okay? So there's three facets of prayer there. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if you ask for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Seeking the Holy Spirit. Asking God for more of the Holy Spirit. Knocking on heaven's door and saying, God, I want more of the Holy Spirit. Please give me more of the Holy Spirit. Because he pro- this is like Jesus provoking us here. It's like, kind of, he's almost like, hey, come on, ask for more of the Holy Spirit. Ask for more of the-. And if you do, the Father will give them to you. There's a seeking involved in our part. of relationship with the Holy Spirit. And it's an awesome thing. I'm telling you, the relationship with the Holy Spirit, it's like, that's what Jesus actually says in John 16, 8, I believe, that it's better for you <laughs> that I go so that the spirit of truth, the promised Holy Spirit will come. It's a, isn't that interesting? It's better that Je- like most of us would be like, I'd rather walk with Jesus on earth when he's here. But Jesus is saying, it's actually better that I go so that you can have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. God himself, the presence of God. It's amazing. It's amazing, and it's a privilege. That's what Jesus came. He came, you look, what, what birthed the church? The coming of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. That was the birth of the church, the Holy Spirit came. That's the only identifying marker of Christians. The only one is this, whether you have the Spirit of God or not. It's the only thing, scripturally speaking. Now, I just end on this. This is a promise from Jesus. Talking about righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they'll be filled. So the fact that you want to be righteous, the fact that you're seeking righteousness, the fact that you're interested in getting to know the Holy Spirit, Jesus promises you're going to become righteous. You're going to be filled with that desire. And so talking about godly character, talking about how do you develop Christ-likeness in our lives because we're going to stand before the Lord one day. I'm going to end on this story, actually. It's a short, I'll give it a short version. Do you guys, I've talked about this before, but this is amazing. Trisha was talking about Rick Joyner. He had an encounter in, in heaven with Elijah. This is not too long ago. Then he met Enoch. And he said the thing that impressed him the most about Enoch was how joyful he was. He could not believe how joyful he was. He just, it was, he was the happiest person he's ever met on earth. Like he just couldn't believe it. So then after this encounter, Enoch leaves. He's talking to Elijah. And the first thing that comes to Rick's mind is like he asks Elijah, why aren't you like that? Elijah's all serious, and you know Elijah, he said something like this. He's like, you know what? I should have been, and I should be. He said, but I let the circumstances of the age, right, because he lived it. Remember, if you know the story of Elijah, get, he got depressed. He ran away. Then God gave the, his mantle to Elisha. He let the circumstances of the day get him down, get him depressed. And then he said something. Rick said this is one of the most, like, shaking things for the last few years that the Lord spoke to him. How, he said, if you understood, I'm paraphrasing now, I wish I had the book here. If you understood how we, what, how we develop ourselves in this life sets our, who we're going to be forever. 
He said, if we understood how we live our lives now is going to determine who we're going to be forever, we would seek the fruit of the Spirit more than silver and gold. Because he said the reason Elijah was so happy is because he had such intimacy with the Lord. And he said his days, and it's true, you look at Noah's days, were so dark. And he said he had so much joy because of the intimacy he had with the Lord. If we understood that, we would pursue the fruit of the Spirit because we set our character, who we're going to be forever, based on how we develop it in this life. Interesting. So... It would be good for us. How do you pursue righteousness? That's why it's an important question. How do we develop Christ-like character? By walking in the Spirit. Learning how to do that should be something that we are all pursuing so that we can stand before the Lord one day with great confidence. So on that note, I'd like to pray for us. (laughs) Father, we just thank you so much. Lord, and I just ask for supernatural grace on everyone who who heard a whole bunch of scriptures. I pray for the grace to, to, to just absorb it, even though there was a lot. And I just ask for the revelation of intimacy with you by your spirit and how it looks like in our individual lives to walk in the spirit, to be led by the spirit, to keep in step with the spirit, to live by the spirit. And Lord, I just ask for that revelation of what the law of the spirit looks like in each and every one of us. I ask God that I thank you for your promise that as we contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into your image from glory to glory with ever increasing glory, which comes from you, the Lord, who is the spirit. So God, I just ask as we seek, we thank you we're going to find. As we knock, the door is going to be open. As we ask, we'll receive. And so we just ask for more of the Holy Spirit. And God, if there's anyone in here who has not met you or your Holy Spirit yet, I just ask that you introduce yourself to them. I just ask that you you encounter them with your love, that you show yourself to them so that they would know that you are real. And Lord, I just ask that you just bless every single person here. I ask God that every single one of us would be able to stand before you with confidence as we've developed a relationship with you through your Holy Spirit in this age, that your character would be manifest in us to such an extent that we would grow, so to speak, abundantly all the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Lord, I just ask that you bless every single person here with your presence and with your goodness. And Lord, I just ask that you, the God of hope, will fill us all with joy and peace as we trust in you so that we'd overflow with hope by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask for a fresh revelation of grace and a fresh revelation of life in the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we have, as Trisha mentioned, for those of you who are new year, hospitality. If you want to eat some snacks, drink some coffee, we have that in the hall. If you go out there to the left, you want to hang out, meet some people, that's awesome. Also remember, we're having, um, if you're interested in potentially doing outreach with us next Saturday and you have questions or you want some information, uh, we're going to meet in that room shortly, and so feel free to come, and, and we'd be happy to uh, explain it a little bit more. We also have a sign-up sheet in the back there if you're interested in doing outreach. For the rest of you, feel free to hang out. 